This podcast episode may contain disturbing and triggering imagery and language for some. Please be advised, feel free to put the episode down and come back to it if you need to. Take care of yourself. Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, Emmett Till. A name that reverberates deep in the American consciousness. 67 years ago, Emmett Till was lynched at the age of 14 a wrongful death that set the tone for the civil rights movement and black liberation. What happened on that Mississippi night in 1955 sparked a collective interrogation of the racial hierarchy in America, a conversation that we are still reckoning with to this day. My name is Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. This episode was supposed to come out three days ago. The 67th anniversary of Emmett Till's lynching was this past Sunday, and I had a plan to release an episode in his honor. Every year on the anniversary of Emmett Till's lynching, I I reflect, I get a little sad. I just think back on it. I think about who I was at 14 years old. I was I was crushing on a cheerleader, trying out for the basketball team, staying up till 2 a.m. playing video games with my brother. I was a 14-year-old. Emmett was a 14-year-old. Before I do these episodes, I do my research, I draft a script, and I record uh, the script. But this time around, I just couldn't find the words. The emotional labor was just a little too daunting. I gotta be honest. But here we are, the story of Emmett Till. Typically, when you hear the story of Emmett Till, The rhetoric is solely focused around Carolyn Bryant, the woman who played a part in his lynching and is still alive today in 2022. But the conversation isn't usually focused on Emmett himself, at least in my experience. Emmett Till was born July 25th, 1941, to Mamie Carthen and Louis Till. His father, Louis, hailed from Missouri. Uh, He was an intelligent and active man. He had a short-lived career as an amateur boxer in his teenage years. At the age of 17, he began to date Mamie, and a few years later, Emmett, their only son, was born. The two were eventually married. Lewis was unfaithful, and during parts of their marriage, caused Mamie to leave. Lewis grew enraged, and things turned violent, causing a judge to tell Lewis, either you enlist in the army, or you'll be imprisoned. Lewis chose the army. During World War II, Lewis was stationed in the Italian town of Siva Tavecchia. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. During an air raid in June of 1944, two women were allegedly raped and one was killed. American soldiers in the vicinity were accused of the crime. Lewis and another private named Fred McMurray were found guilty and they were hanged five months later. Emmett's mother, Mamie, was born in Mississippi in the fall of 1921. She and her family were participants in the Great Migration and emigration of African-Americans from the Jim Crow South to the northern and western parts of the United States during the early to mid-20th century. The family eventually settled in Argo, Illinois, near Chicago. Emmett Till was a happy kid, a jovial kid. He was diagnosed with a case of polio at a young age, which left him with a speech impediment in the form of a stutter. Mamie and Emmett moved to Detroit, where she remarried a man named Pink Bradley. Emmett liked Chicago, so he moved back there to live with his grandmother, and his mother and stepdad joined them a year later. In 1955, 
Mamie's Uncle Mose visited her and Emmett in Chicago from Mississippi and told them stories of the great times he had living in the Mississippi Delta. Emmett was enthralled with the prospect of a new world, something to explore, somewhere else. He was an adventurous kid. Emmett convinced his mom to let him accompany his great uncle Mose back to Mississippi for the summer of 1955, and Mamie obliged. Before Emmett left, she cautioned him that Chicago and Mississippi were two completely different worlds for a black boy. He told her that he understood. This would be the last time she would see her son alive. Emmett arrived in the town of Money, Mississippi on August 21, 1955. He was picked up from the train station by his cousin Maurice, who was Moses' son. They traveled to Moses' house, which was a sharecropper's residence. Emmett Till spent the last days of his life on a sharecropping plantation with his extended family. He and his cousins worked hard during the day, working and tending to the cotton fields under the hot August sun. But during the night, they would play to their heart's content. Wednesday, August 24th. The events that took place during this day have been up for debate for the last almost 70 years. Emmett and his cousins drove into town and stopped at Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market. Some accounts say that Emmett had a photo of a woman in his wallet, and he and his cousins got into a debate about whether Emmett had ever had success with a white woman. Some say that he then went into the store on a dare to talk to the white woman behind the counter. That white woman was Carolyn Bryant, the wife of Roy Bryant, the owner of the store. Emmett's mother later went on record to say that the picture um, in Emmett's wallet was a white woman, but it came with the wallet. Like I said, there are conflicting reports about what went on in the store that day, but this is what Carolyn Bryant said happened. She claims that when she held out her hand for Till to pay for his purchase, he grabbed it firmly and asked, how about a date, baby? She jerked her hand free, turned to go back to the store, and Till caught her by the cash register, placing his hand on her waist. What's the matter, baby? Can't you take it? You needn't be afraid of me. And Carolyn Bryant said that Till bragged that he had been with white women before. Most reports say that Emmett either said goodbye to the woman or whistled, which his mother confirmed that Emmett would sometimes whistle as an effort to control his speech impediment. She said he would have probably whistled because he was trying to say the word bubblegum, which he had bought when he went into the store. The group left the store and immediately returned to the house of Moe's Wright. Roy Bryant had been immediately informed by his wife, which she said happened at the store that day. Bryant went on to interrogate all the black men who entered the store and were surrounding the area. In the early hours of August 28, 1955, between 2 and 3.30 a.m., Bryant and his half-brother J.W. Millam drove to the house of Moe's Wright. Bryant and Millam approached the house of Moe's with a gun and a flashlight and questioned Moe's if there was a boy from Chicago in the house. They took Emmett from the house, tied him up and threw him in the back of a pickup truck. They took him to a barn in a town called Drew. They pistol whipped him until he was unconscious. They beat Emmett and Emmett was fearless in the moment, telling his captors that he was just as good as them. They drove Emmett to a cotton gin, shot him in the head and weighed his neck with a 70 pound cotton gin and threw him in the Tallahatchie River. When his body was exhumed, it was unrecognizable. The skin was peeling off. His tongue was sticking straight out and his eyes were bulging out of his head. His body was swollen. The fingernails were gone. The odor was unbearable. Emmett Till's funeral was an open casket. Mamie Till Bradley demanded her son's body be brought back to Chicago and she made a point for the entire world to see her son. 
Jet Magazine posted the photos in their publication for everyone to see. Over 50,000 people laid eyes directly on the body. In the casket, the body lay deformed and deteriorated from so much time in the water. Not only was his body on display, but his mother's grief was on display as well. This gave photographers and journalists from all over a chance to document these surreal images and circulate it for all to see. The entire nation was going to bear witness to Emmett Till. I remember seeing the photos of Emmett Till's body in the open casket when I was maybe 13 years old searching around on Google. I saw these images at a time when I couldn't understand the gravity of what they meant. Scholars and historians have pointed out the symbolism in the decision to showcase Emmett's body. You see, during the 19th and 20th century, it was customary after a lynching of a black person for white people to gather around the body, take pictures with it, chop parts off and take them home as souvenirs. They would have picnics around the body. They would celebrate around the body like a carnival. These pictures would circulate like mementos. But Mamie showing Emmett's lynched body and allowing it to be photographed and circulated was a reclaiming of sorts. No longer will you commodify our corpses for your pleasure and celebration. This time, we will use this moment to raise awareness to make sure this never happens again. The trial of the murderers, Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam, opened in September of 1955 in Sumner, Mississippi, which was the county seat of Tallahatchie. The town's slogan was, a good place to raise a boy. The irony. The trial was the talk of the entire nation. People from all over waited with bated breath to see if justice would be served or if the right thing would be done. The group of people who wanted it all to just go away were white Southerners because white Southerners had everything to lose here. The trial was a marvel to many. People from all over crowded the city and the courtroom like the Olympics were in town. Folks from up north made the trip to not only witness the trial proceedings, but to support the defendants. Presiding over the scene was Tallahatchie County Sheriff Clarence Strider. A journalist named John Herbert was quoted saying that he did not believe that Sheriff Strider was there to seek justice, but rather to ensure that the courtroom was completely segregated. And segregated it was. Black spectators were relegated to the very back of the courtroom, and black reporters had to crowd a card table to the side. Racist jokes and jeers made their way all around the courtroom. Wasn't it just like a nigger to try and cross the Tallahatchie River with a gin fan around his neck? It was a very hectic and hostile environment, to say the least. Once the trial started, the prosecution put its best foot forward in a valiant effort, even though all the cards were stacked against them. The prosecution called key eyewitnesses, such as Emmett's great-uncle Mose, who directly testified that it was Millam and Bryant who took Emmett from his home. Two sharecroppers also testified that they heard beatings and screaming coming from the Millam family shed. Emmett's mother testified that she had indeed identified the body of her son that was pulled from the river. This case was open and shut, or so you would think. Carolyn Bryant testified, but her testimony was allowed to be given outside the presence of the jury, and Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam never even took the stand at all. For his closing summation, defense attorney Sidney Carlton told the all-white, all-male jury that if they didn't free Millam and Bryant, your ancestors will turn over in their grave, and I'm sure every last Anglo-Saxon one of you has the courage to free these men. And they did. 67 minutes, that's how long it took the all-white, all-male jury to deliberate. They returned with a verdict of not guilty. 
reporters said they overheard laughing inside the jury room. Once, one juror later said we wouldn't have taken so long if we hadn't stopped to drink pop. Milliman and Bryant lit cigars and kissed their wives right after the verdict was read. This trial was incredibly unique in the fact that this exact same thing had been happening for centuries to black people. White perpetrators would lynch black people for the crime of simply breathing or looking the wrong way or false accusations of sexual assault, and they would get away with it. It was incredibly normal. But the fact that Milliman and Bryant were brought to trial in the first place was astonishing to say the very least. The buzz for the trial was massive beforehand and massive afterwards. Life magazine published an article titled Emmett Till's Day in Court, in which the author asserted that the prosecution was against the whole mass of Mississippi prejudice. The undertones of racial hatred in the case came out when the defense suggested that the whole thing was a plot by outsiders to help destroy the Southern way of life. Reader's Digest also decried the situation in Mississippi, saying the town of Sumner never became part of the New South, never wanted to. Its root remained deep in the Delta. Segregation wasn't an issue. It was a way of life. In an October 1955 editorial entitled Mississippi Barbarianism, Crisis asserted that the white people of Mississippi are directly responsible for this hideous crime. The white minds of Mississippi are poisoned with every imaginable lie and slander about Negroes and the NAACP. But in a lot of places, Mississippi and the America South as a whole were being judged and looked at very differently. In 1956, Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam did an interview with Look Magazine where they all but confessed to the murder. Due to double jeopardy clauses, meaning they couldn't be tried again, they faced zero repercussions. J.W. Millam was quoted in this interview saying, well, what else could we do? He was hopeless. I'm no bully. I never hurt a nigger in my life. I like niggers in their place. I know how to work them, but I just decided it was time a few people got put on notice. As long as I live and can do anything about it, niggers are going to stay in their place. Niggers ain't going to vote where I live. If they did, they'd control the government. They ain't going to go to school with my kids. And when a nigger gets close to mentioning sex with a white woman, he's tired of living. I'm likely to kill him. Me and my folks fought for this country and we got some rights. I stood there in that shed and listened to that nigger throw that poison at me. And I just made up my mind. Chicago boy, I said, I'm tired of him sending your kind down here to stir up trouble. God damn you. I'm going to make an example of you just so everybody can know how me and my folks stand. J.W. Millam apparently lived a meager life afterwards and died of an unspecified cancer in 1980. Roy Bryant lost his store after a boycott from the black community. He ended up serving two years in prison for food stamp fraud in the 80s. He also died of cancer in 1994. As for Carolyn Bryant, her story changed a lot. She said Emmett Till touched her. Then he didn't. He talked to her. Then he didn't. She said she told her husband. But no, no, someone else told him. Author Timothy Tyson said that in a 2008 interview, Carolyn Bryant admitted to him that her accusations against Emmett Till were false. Carolyn Bryant is now in her 80s, living in Kentucky, dying from cancer. Emmett Till was not a victim because he did something. He was a victim because he was a black boy viewed as a black man in the wrong place at the wrong time, and black bodies were expendable, especially in the South. Emmett Till's murder was sudden, but laid the groundwork for the civil rights fight of the next half century. 
His murder inspired groups like the Black Panthers and inspired the civil rights leaders that we revere, like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. His murder was influential in the overturning of Brown v. Board of Education, which said that racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. We saw the Civil Rights Act of 1964 signed not even a decade after he was killed. Emmett's mother, Mamie Till Bradley, passed away in 2003. Emmett's death was a wake-up call to what the horrors of racism and the American South really were. Emmett Till wasn't the first black person to be lynched and he wasn't the last, but his lynching being put on national display was a spark that lit a flame in the hearts and minds of every black person in America. Emmett Till's birthday was July 25th. He would have been 81 years old this year. Rest in power, Emmett Till. Until next time. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review. It goes a long way. If you dig what we do here at the Redacted History Podcast, consider checking us out on Patreon. You can find that in the show notes below. You can also find the link to the Instagram, screenshot yourself listening to it, tag us on your Instagram story, and tell us your favorite part about the show or your favorite episode. And visual episodes of the podcast are on their way. You'll find that on the YouTube channel. The trailer is live. That's in the show notes as well. I appreciate you all. The support is crazy and let's keep it going. I love y'all. Thank you.